All right, Book of Jude. Book of Jude. Book of Jude. And before we do any, we're not going to do a, a large amount of review. Before I ask you uh, the little kind of statement we made up about the book, before I ask anything about that, I this is just a, more of a, a question that I was thinking about. A lot of times, obviously, when we first start a book, one of the very first things we establish is the purpose of the book, right? We establish what is the purpose of the book? What is the purpose of the book? And I'm curious of does it, I mean, on, I think from a hermeneutical standpoint, determining the purpose of the book is absolutely essential because if you don't understand the purpose of the book, then you have many issues. I received an email the other day asking me about a, a passage in the book of Hebrews. Uh, basically, this whole idea, you know, can someone lose their salvation or if someone falls away from the faith, what can they come back? That kind of thing. And I, I had to briefly respond. I'm probably going to do a recording, uh, an episode about it. But I basically responded saying, well, the purpose of, of Hebrews is about is written to the Jews and warning them of, of what's going to happen in 70 AD. Completely different purpose of the book. So that's very essential, obviously, uh, to get a correct interpretation of the book. So we've talked about that over and over and over. But beyond the hermeneutical ramifications, which I think are constantly forgotten, I'm curious... For the average person sitting in the pew, oh, we're not? Okay. Yes. Okay. Let's see what's going on. It says we're live. Okay. All right. Okay, good. Okay, good. All right. No, I wanted to make sure that we're, we're good to go. All right. Okay. Yeah. That. All right. Okay. We're good. Okay, all right. Okay, that's fine. All right. Some technical difficulties. Okay, so we'll, we'll set that aside. All right, so back to uh, what we were uh, discussing. The, um, I, I question, though, if the purpose of the book, once the book, that we establish the purpose of the book, it's something that we may write down in our notes. It's something we may remember. Hopefully, it does have major implications to our hermeneutics, but I don't know if it really has much impact on the person sitting in the pew. I don't know if they, I don't know if the average person really cares what the purpose of the book is because I have a feeling that people kind of take the Bible and they take it and use it for whatever purpose they so desire, right? We see that, say, in Jeremiah, right? The famous passage, I know the plans I have for you, right? Everyone, everyone, in fact, there was a church in Abilene, I can't remember how many weeks ago we drove by and they have that verse, uh, you know, on their sign. And I wanted to stop and go in and say, hey, so where, where are the people who returned from Babylonian captivity? Because obviously you got a message for them on your sign because that has nothing to do with anybody today. But the average person in the pew just takes whatever verse they want and uses it for whatever they want. So again, does the purpose really matter? And the reason I'm stressing that is we come in our study to the book of Jude to the section in our outline that we will refer to as the purpose. But I don't know if anyone actually cares that it's the purpose. Um, I, I think a lot of people think, well, that's the purpose of the book, but it has nothing to do with me. And, and hopefully that will make some sense. So let's remind. So I just want you to think about the purpose of a book. Do you really care about the purpose of the book? I know you say you do, but do you really care about what the purpose of the book is? You should always remember it 
for hermeneutical purposes, and it should have some major impact on how you apply it and what you do with it. But I just think that we, we view the Bible in a really like, it's just for me to do whatever I want with it. And I, and I think that that's a problem. And we'll see how that applies here. All right, so the book of Jude. Simply put, I gave everyone like a little statement to remember. What is the book of Jude? It's a letter. Or we refer to it as a survival manual. Yeah, written to protect the church from negative influences that were seeking to destroy it. We, used a, we, we gave a, different, a couple of different paraphrases of that, but that's what you're supposed to remember. It was written for what? To protect the church from the negative influences that were seeking to destroy it. Now, for the average person, one, that should have a profound impact on what? Your hermeneutics. Remember, I've already just went through these. Your hermeneutics. And it should have a profound impact on how you apply it. Okay? So I'm really, I'm really going to stress this because I just think that this is one of those examples where everyone will know the purpose of Jude, but in reality, nobody cares because nobody does what they should do as a result of this being the purpose of the book. So I'm really going to emphasize that, okay? So that, we did that. Then the first thing we looked at when we started our outline was what? We looked at the we looked at the greeting, yes? Okay, and what did we find from the greeting? We found the author. The author identifies himself as what? Servant. And what else? Well, let's just read it since everybody seems to have forgotten Jude uh, 1. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, all right? So the author identifies himself as a servant and identifies himself as the brother of James. I'm not going to go back through all of the significance of that. All right, then what else does he do in his greeting? He, he identifies the author, the recipients. So the uh, recipients are identified in three ways. To them that are sanctified by God the Father, preserved and called. We talked about all three of those, okay? Now, remember, why is it important to note that the author identifies the recipients in those three ways? Well, what's the purpose of the book? Obviously, the church is going to be dealing with negative influences that are attacking the church. So what better way to give the people who he's writing to some sense of security? Yes? He's giving them a sense of security. That, hey, yes, there's these negative influences attacking the church. Yes, this is a serious situation. Yes, this is a dangerous situation. But you are safe because you are sanctified, preserved, and called. All right, everybody remember that? Then what did he give them? Then he gave them a blessing. And what is the threefold blessing? Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied. Again, why is that significant in the purpose of the book? Well, it's an encouragement, yes? 
He, he, he kind of reminds them of their security and then gives them an encouragement. But not only that, I think this is very, very, very important. I want you to just write down the words mercy, peace, and love. And I want you to just circle them and see how they relate to what we're going to be talking about today. I think, first of all, they serve as an encouragement, but they may also be very critical for an instruction. And, I, and we talked about this last week, how that we can interpret these things through, uh, two different ways, right? Remember I said we could, we could you look at this as, here's an encouragement, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied towards you, yes? And then I talked about how this could also be a challenge for them to be the ones who give said mercy and peace and love, which is going to be very critical for what we talk about today, once again, related to the purpose of the... Are you catching on to what I keep repeating? The purpose of the book. Yes? The purpose of the book. Everybody got that? Okay, now, let's go to the purpose, which is found in verses 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4. Okay? Everybody ready? Are we good? Any questions about the review? All right. I hope, I hope so. I feel a little worried. Okay, but I'm going to hope that everybody's good to go. All right, here we go. So starting in verse 3. Okay, starting in verse 3, we have beloved. Now, let's just stop right here. That's another term of what? Endearment, encouragement, Right? Hey, in other words, it's almost like, we're, you know, you're the beloved. We're in this together. We need to, he's, he's, he's really trying to start it from a very encouraging perspective. He's, he's really trying to, to get them to understand, hey, we're in this together. But then immediately from that, he, he explains ultimately the purpose of the book by saying that he actually started off to do something else. When I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation. Let's stop right here. Okay. What was his original purpose? Now, when you think of the purpose of Jude, you have to think of the purpose two ways. The original purpose and the actual purpose. Jude, in a sense, there was, a, there was an original purpose that gets changed. And the original purpose was he was going to write to them to talk about what? The common salvation. So, let, before we do anything else, let's ask ourselves, what could he mean by the common salvation? So, let's do this. If you have the Blue Letter Bible app, we know where we're going to go. What word are we going to look up? Common. What does he mean by common? What does he mean by common? Do all translations use the word common? What? Salvation we share. Now, that gives you a, a, a kind of an interpretation of what they think common means. What do they think common means? Based off that translation. Something that we have in common. Right? Something that we uh, all share. Does that, does that make sense? Okay. Um, for some reason, I'm in First Peter. All right, here we go. I was like, that makes absolutely no sense. Okay. All right, here we go. Verse 3. Open up the interlinear. All right? And then we go to common. The Greek word for common is this Greek word. 
Strong's G2839, Koinas. 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 It's used how many times? Twelve. It's used in the following ways. Seven times common, three times unclean, one time defiled, one time unholy. Now, when it says common, so something could be common. In other words, you could use something common meaning what? Just, it's something, well, well I hate to say the word, but we, we, in our culture, we, we separate everything by sacred and secular, right? It's common. It's not sacred, right? So, the idea that it is unclean, defiled, or unholy. Well, we don't think he's referring to an, a defiled, unholy salvation, right? <clears throat> Everyone agree? Right. So, very important note. Just remember, a word can mean multiple, a word can be translated and mean a number of things. What do sometimes determine which meaning you go with? Context, yes. And this, is, this can be very frustrating when you're arguing with someone because someone will get a, you know, a blue letter Bible app or a Strong's Concordance and be like, but the word means this, the word means this. And you're like, uh, look at the context. That makes absolutely no sense. So can we all agree that, hey, I'm writing to you about that unholy, defiled salvation. That doesn't make any sense. Agreed? All right, so if it doesn't mean that, so then the word common, koinos, seems to be the going with the, uh, def, uh, translating it as common makes most sense. So what does it mean? What's Strong's definition? Shared by all or several that's probably the best we can come up with because ceremonially profane or common, defiled, unclean, or unholy doesn't fit, yes? The, out, the outline of biblical usage, common. Common, ordinary, belonging to generality by the Jews, unhallowed, profane, Levitically unclean. So simply put, what is it, what's another way of paraphrasing what he's saying? Beloved, my original intent was to write about what? The salvation we share. The salvation we share. Now, it's, it's kind of interesting that almost implies, well, I, it doesn't, I don't think this necessarily implies that everyone, well, at that, maybe at that time it would. For us, it's a, little, it's a little more complicated. What would be the problems today if I decided to write a letter to a bunch of Christians about the salvation we all commonly experience or we all commonly share? What would be the problem about that in 2022? Well, we don't agree on salvation. Now, anytime I mention how much disagreement there is within Christianity... I always either get a YouTube comment or an email going, well, we don't disagree that much, which is always absolutely dumbfounding to me and staggering because think about what Christians don't agree on. Okay, let's just start. Do Christians agree on baptism? No. Do Christians agree on the Lord's Supper? No. Do Christians agree on church leadership, church structure? No. Now, when it comes to salvation, what do Christians agree with on salvation? Do some believe you can lose it? Do some believe you can't lose it? Some people believe they got it because they chose, right? Or what? Say it. 
They were baptized, right? So you got some believe you got it because they were baptized. Next, some believe because they chose it or they accepted it. They did something. Others say you got it not because of what you did, but because of what God did. Is there any agreement there? No, I mean, I could go on and on and on and on. There's no agreement. So in some ways, we, it would be hard for us to write about the common salvation because we... There's nothing common about our belief in it. In other words, we don't share the same beliefs in regards to it, which is very interesting because he feels like, hey, we all agree on salvation. It's kind of interesting that he, it, it almost feels like, okay, I was going to write about this, but something else came up, meaning that he didn't feel like, that the salvation question itself was something that they needed to fix because everyone already understood salvation. Which is just kind of interesting concept. It's just, it's just find it interesting. Hey, I was going to write about the common salvation. That salvation we all have. That salvation, that it, almost, it almost implies, I'm not saying that this is a dogmatically true, but it almost implies that one that we all agree on. Like, we all agree on that. Yeah, we don't have an issue about this. I wish that was the case, but it's not the case anymore. It's not the case anymore. But, so, that was the, so what was the original purpose? To write about the salvation we share. It was needful for me. All right? So he was going to do this, and something changed his original purpose. What was the catalyst that changed his original purpose? It was needful, a need. A need arose. He saw a need. There was a need, and he was like, oh, stop. we got to change our purpose. And what became the, the, the actual purpose that ultimately that defines this letter? To write unto you and to... It was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you. Let's stop right here. So the original purpose was to write about a shared salvation. The actual purpose starts with, and we're just going to list out kind of the, the actual purpose. Number one, to exhort them. To exhort them. All right, well, let's look up the word exhort. Let's look up the word exhort here. Okay, we have an exhort. This Greek word is, and there's a lot to this Greek word. Strong's G, 3870. Parakaleo. 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 Parakaleo uh, is used 109 times. Right? And it's used a lot of different ways. Are you ready? Paracaleo is, is 43 times translated beseech, 23 times comfort, 21 times exhort, 8 times desire, 6 times pray, 3 times entreat, 4 times in a miscellaneous, 1 time besought. Strong's definition of paracaleo. To call near, invite, invoke, beseech, Call for, comfort, desire, exhortation, entreat, pray. Do you get any kind of idea what that's referring to? 
Pa'akaleo, it's you, uh, the outline of biblical usage. To call to one side, call or summon, or call for summon, right? Call for or summon. All right, what's the idea there? Hey, come here. Come here. Everybody gather around. Right? So he's, he's trying to gather, he's trying to get everyone to come together to listen. What else? To address, to speak, to call upon, which may be done in the way of an exhortation, entreaty, comfort, or instruction. To admonish, to beg, entreat, to strive, to appease by entreaty, to console, to encourage, strengthen by consolation, comfort, to encourage, strengthen, exhortation, comforting, encouraging, to instruct and to teach. So in a roundabout way, he's, he's doing this. He's calling everyone together to admonish them, to beg them, right? To encourage them, to instruct them, to teach them. Something's, there's obviously whatever this need is, it's pretty serious, yes? There's this need that stops him, and he's like, okay, guys, listen, 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 listen. I beg you, listen to me, right? Now, there may be some encouragement in it, but he definitely wants them to pay attention, and he's going to instruct them, and he's going to teach them. So what, what has got him so concerned that he's like, everyone, stop what you're doing. Listen to me. I'm, I'm begging you, listen to me. Well, let's go back to the text. All right. Beloved, I write, or beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that I want you to circle the ye. Now, this is where I'm tempted to say, let's not even waste our time. Let's just close our Bibles and just forget it. Because we're getting ready to pretend. We're getting ready to... It's like little kids playing house. We're just getting ready to pretend. Because this exhortation is not to pastors. It's not to missionaries. It's to whom? You. And to me, this just becomes a big game where we all like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And nobody is going to do what's required to do what he's about to say. Nobody's going to do the work. There'll always be a few, but the most will not. To you. So he exhorts you to what? Earnestly. Let's stop right here. Let's look up the word earnestly. Let's look up the word earnestly here. Yeah, that ye should earnestly contend. Yeah, all that. It really becomes a phrase. It is this word. Strong's G, 1864. Epagonizamai. 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 Right? That's a, that's a mouthful, right? Epagonizamai. Now, it is used how many times? <clears throat> Once. Epagonizamai is used one time. So this is good. The other ones had all like 50 different meanings. We know we're going to know what Epagonizamai means, right? It means what? What's the definition? To struggle for. 
earnestly contend, to contend, to contend. Now do this. Look up an English definition for contend. Paganizamai is to earnestly contend, right? It's, it's emphasizing the contending, right? It's, it's, it's to earnestly contend. So what does it mean to contend? Look up in English. To struggle, to surmount. Assert something as a position and an argument. Earnestly contend. The earnestly stresses it, yes? That you are to be contending for. Who is supposed to? You. Now, in this particular case, this is written to the people in the church at that time, and it's applicable to you. You. All right? Earnestly contend. Now, what are they to earnestly contend for? The faith. Stop right there. Okay, it is your... I just want to make this... This book is written to tell the people of the church that it's your job, not my job, your job, to earnestly contend for the faith. Now, what would be, let's just think of this, just think this through. What would just think this through? Just, just, and I want you to write these down. You can, you can throw out the suggestions. What would be required for, the, per, for a person to be able to earnestly contend for the faith? First, you have to know what the faith is. You have to be the experts in the. Like, if you're going to go earnestly contend for something, you better be the expert in it. Right? If I get into a music discussion with someone, right, I better know what I'm talking about. If I'm going to earnestly contend for an argument about a, a, a best decade or best album of all time or whatever, Whatever, best, we can go through all kinds of different things in music. I better know it to such the level that I can earnestly contend for it. Because what happens if you don't know it and you try to earnestly contend for it? You end up looking really stupid in about 5.3 seconds. If I try to earnestly contend with you and how to fix a car, I'm going to look stupid in about three seconds because you could just open the hood and say, what's that? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, that's the engine. Okay, well, that's new to me. All right? I don't know. Yes? Okay. A lot of Christians try to earnestly contend for that which they don't really know. So you have to know the faith. What, what's required in knowing the faith? What, what would the faith encompass? Well, I think the faith includes what? What would be involved in in the faith? Name some things that would be involved in the faith. What what would be, what would that, okay, would involve the gospel, okay. 
But if you're going to say the gospel, doesn't it involve a belief in God, obviously? Or who's God? Who's Jesus? Who's the Holy Spirit? What is the Trinity? What is the deity of Christ? What is the humanity of Christ? Wouldn't that involve the hypostatic union? I can go on and on. We can go on all day. That's just God, Jesus, and the Spirit. Yes? I mean, and the faith involves far more than just the gospel. I mean, it, it involves ever. Would it involve baptism? Well, let's just, just for, for, to see where it says the faith. Well, let's see how the Greek handles that. Let's just see how the Greek, if it offers any, contend for the faith. Go back to the interlinear. For the faith, right? Everybody see that? Right? It is this Greek word. Strong's G, 4102, pistis. Pistis. Pistis, it's used 244 times. 239 times faith, one time assurance. Uh, believe, with a, a different Greek word, belief, them that believe and fidelity. Right? 244 times. Here's the outline. Conviction of the truth of anything, belief in the New Testament of a conviction or belief respecting man's relationship to God and divine things, generally with the included idea of trust, holy fervor, born of faith, and joined with it. Relating to God, the conviction that God exists and is creator and ruler of all things, the provider and bestower of eternal salvation through Christ. Relating to, to Christ, a strong and welcome conviction or belief that Jesus is the Messiah through whom we obtain eternal salvation in the kingdom of God. The religious beliefs of Christians, belief with the uh, predominant idea of trust, whether in God or in Christ, springing from faith in the same, fidelity, faithfulness, the character of one uh, who can be relied on. It, it involves a lot of things, does it not? Now, you see why I'm tempted here just to say close the Bible and just forget it because it's just a game? I mean, I, could, I got no problem taking out, telling everyone to take out a piece of paper right now, giving you a basic you know, test on the faith. How do you think everybody would do? I mean, if you look at all the statistics, I mean, it's just absolutely staggering how little people know. You start asking basic questions about the Trinity, basic questions about theology, basic questions about you know, we can go all the different elements of we can go soteriology. We can go, we can go through all the different branches of theology, and not only people may not even know the terms, they won't even know the doctrines that are connected with said terms. So at some point, we have to ask ourselves, do we really even care what the purpose of the book is? We say we do. Uh, yeah, I, the purpose of Jude is, is to give us a survival manual so that we can, we can stand against these errors coming into the church. And what you really mean is that someone else can stand against the errors. Someone else can stand against the negative influences. Someone else can contend. Someone else can write a book. Someone else can produce a DVD. Someone else can make a YouTube video. Someone else can record a podcast. Someone else can do it. Because I got too many things to do during the day to actually study, read a book, or care. 
So this is one of those situations where it just feels like there's no point in preaching it. Because I will argue the millions of sermons preached on Jude has done very little to motivate the average person to do what's necessary to contend for the faith. And if you look at how many Christians try to contend for the faith on social media, you have to question the... You almost want to say, just don't bother. Amen? Or oh me. You have to contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. What is significant about that last phrase? Don't worry about they. Uh, I, think, I think what it means is that it's, it's not something that's evolving. It's not something that's changing. It's been once delivered. Now you should know it. Now you should earnestly contend for it. So here, what's interesting, he, he doesn't even seem to be saying, I'm going to have to go give you all the information about the faith again. He's just trying to teach these people to do what? To earnestly contend for it. He's trying to exhort them to contend for it, not that they necessarily have to be taught it again. Right. Yeah, that's, that's once delivered. It's once entrusted. It's done. It's not evolving. But I want to make sure we understand that this is, I think it's a significant. It's, he's trying to earn, like for, in 2022, you couldn't even write this. Because you can't say, hey, I want to earnestly contend. I want to earnestly challenge you to go contend for the faith. And people will be like, well, what's the faith? Or they'd be like, okay, I'm going to go hop on, you know, social media and I'm going to argue. And you'll be like, just stop, just stop. You don't even know what you're arguing about or for. And you end up looking like a fool. So the question is, what is even the purpose of the, I mean, what, so what's the purpose of the book? To challenge people to do what? To earnestly contend for the faith. But I will argue that it is a meaningless, meaningless, meaningless verse. What's a critical issue in contending for the faith? I'm just going to stay here. I'm just going to stay on this. Right? What's a critical issue in contending for the faith? What do you think? What's a very important concept that's absolutely necessary if you're going to contend for the faith? Yeah, we've already established that. Something very important. What do we believe the faith is based off of? Remember, in the, in the, this is very important. You've got to see the difference here. All right? So before the, let's just, well, and I'm simplifying history a little bit. Prior to Protestant Reformation, how do you contend for the faith? No, you point to the church. Right? The church is the authority. The church is the one who defines it. Yes? Okay. After the Protestant Reformation, what do we do? We don't point to the church anymore. What do we claim? Ah, now. Now this is, gets us. So what is required to contend for the faith? Knowledge of the Bible. What's the second thing required? Ah, there we go. 
we have to have a hermeneutics in how to interpret the Bible because when you start contending for the faith, it becomes about a never-ending argument and how one interprets what you are reading. So one must know the Bible and one must know hermeneutics. Now, I will bet you a billion dollars, and I think I'm right, that I could probably, that probably less than 10% of all people sitting in the pew have ever read a hermeneutics textbook. Right? And this church, I think maybe one person has, other than me. Maybe two. Right? I have, see, I tried to see where is it. I don't know where it currently is. I have a hermeneutics textbook that I used to bring to the pulpit all the time saying, we need, someone needs to read this, someone needs to read this. Okay? Um, yeah, don't currently know where it's at. Maybe back in the library. Okay? Uh, not a lot of people ever ran up to the pulpit and said, oh, let me have that book. Now, here's a question. If herme- would hermeneutics, how many agree hermeneutics would be required? Right? Because, I mean, what have I said? Every issue is what kind of an issue? It's a hermene- hermeneutical issue, right? How are you going to interpret? How are you going to interpret? How are you going to interpret, right? Hey, You've got to know it, and you've got to know how to interpret it. Well, if the average Christian doesn't even care to read a hermeneutic textbook, then what's the stinking point? We're just playing games, right? Earnestly contend for the faith. Er, we're going to earnestly contend, but I'm not even going to waste the time to read a book to give me the skills and how to interpret the very Bible I'm going to try to quote to argue for the faith. If I, if I brought a test up here just on general Bible knowledge, how do you think we would do? Now, people may do halfway decent with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I would hope. Maybe throw in John. I would hope Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I would hope they would do halfway okay with Acts. Hopefully, everybody in this church would do great on Romans. Well, I've been working on it since 2019. Right? But I bet you I can start pulling out some books that people would not have a clue. Well, don't, and some people may point the finger, it's not me, it's on you. Who's supposed to be earnestly contending? You. So who should be earnestly working on being able to contend? You. And in 2022, you have a billion things to help you be equipped available to you on your phone. I just have a hard time with this passage. Because I, I can preach it and everybody's like, amen, amen. Just get, give me the purpose. And everybody's like, amen. And then nobody does a thing. Nobody changes one behavior. Nobody does anything to, to, because I'm telling you, if you don't even know hermeneutics, how are you going to argue for the faith? I mean, like, it's just... That's how come many Christians, they get into an argument and they just get, I mean, they just look, it's embarrassing to just watch. You're just like, oh man, 
Just stop. Just, just stop. 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 What are you even talking about? They're throwing out some random verse, taken completely out of context, trying to make some argument from a verse that the verse doesn't even say what they're arguing. It's just nonsense after nonsense. After, it's just like, what's the, what are you doing? What, what else do you think would be required to be able to earnestly contend for the faith? Obviously, you've got to have knowledge of, you've got to know what the faith is. You've got to know the Bible. You've got to know hermeneutics. What else do you think would be required? What else do you think would be required? What else? Don't you think you have to have some knowledge on those things which are going against the faith? I mean, don't you have some, don't you have to have the ability not only to discern what's wrong, but to know what it is? Average Christian couldn't give me the basic, the basic elements of Islam. If a Jehovah's Witness came to their door, they wouldn't know what to do. If a Mormon came into the door, they'd be all confused. A Mormon, a Mormon will throw out things about, say, the Council of Nicaea, and the average Christian wouldn't even know. Look, when, when uh, Dan Brown wrote the Da Vinci Code, and he put those supposed historical facts at the beginning of the book, some of those related to the Council of Nicaea, the average Christian had no clue whether it was true or not true. Well, whose fault is that? Whose fault? Whose fault? Yeah, don't say the church. I don't care how bad a church you go to because the information on the Council of Nicaea has been available your entire life. And you say, well, I didn't have the internet. You had a public library, didn't you? How much time did you spend in the public library learning and and growing? No, you didn't do any of it. So, like, do you see where, you see why this is a frustrating verse? Hey, I'm writing to you so that you earnestly contend. And now we preach it and everybody says amen and then nobody does anything. Now, why is he so concerned that these people will contend earnestly for the faith that was once delivered? Because the implication is, hey, you know the faith. It's been handed down. You know it. What, what is what is the, the purpose, and I'm going to put the next part. You, you could almost uh, put the next verse not with the purpose, but I'm going to say the purpose, we give the original purpose, we get the actual purpose, and then we get the, um, the I, I think, the importance of the, uh, the, um, uh, the purpose. We, we, could, we could break it down another way, but what does he say in the next verse? Because certain men have done what? Crept in unawares. Why is this such a pressing matter? The purpose of the book tells you why the purpose is so pressing. Because the danger is where? Inside the church. It's inside the church. 
Again, hate to borrow from pop culture, but we got to borrow from pop culture. Going back to the 1970s, then they redid it, I think, in the 2000s. There was a horror movie. This person keeps calling the house, calling the house. I think she's babysitting, and she keeps getting these calls, and she contacts the cops to try to figure out what's going on. Who is this person that keeps bothering me? And finally, they call her and tell her, the call is coming from inside the house. Get out. And you're like, ah, what's going on? Well, the day, Jude is saying the call is coming from inside the church. Now, that's a frightening thought, right? That the greatest threat, I, I know this goes against, uh, I, this is what I find so fascinating. Christians constantly perceive the greatest threat as always outside the church. Like, if we go to the Christian Post, I don't know about today, but at least about a week ago, I, there was probably four or five articles about Turning Red, the horrible Disney movie that's going to destroy the world and end everyone's Christianity, you know? And it's like everybody's losing their mind over Turning Red. Christians are boycotting. Christians want, you know, are, are protesting in front of Disney. And Disney is evil. And Disney is the, the, the thing that's going to ruin our kids and ruin it. Disney! Disney! And you're like, calm down. Is it Disney that's the great threat? Jude doesn't say, it's Disney. Obviously, there wasn't a Disney, but he didn't say, it's Rome. It's the pagans. It's the false gods. Earnestly contend for the faith. And why do you need to earnestly contend for it? Because where is the danger? Inside the church. Inside Christianity. Now, whenever I say that, people get mad at me. But I'm, I'm just saying the Bible almost constantly puts the danger where? And it's inside me, inside you, inside the church. The problem is inside us. The church spends its time trying to fight, fight that which is outside of the church, of which I'll never understand our preoccupation with what the, why? It's like we get mad, like, the world will make movies that we like. And if you don't, well, can't. I mean, like I've always said, the church created cancel culture. For the church to whine about cancel culture, is to me, is the most ironic and hypocritical thing in the world. Church created it. Back in the 80s, it was like, we want this album not to be sold, and we want this band, and we want MTV removed from our cable system, and we want Elvis Presley never to make another song, and it was, wow, just whine, 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 whine. But it, it, but I've said before, the greatest danger is rarely the secular radio station, it's the Christian radio station. The greatest danger is not the occult bookstore, it's the Christian bookstore. The greatest danger is not what's happening in pop culture, it's probably what's going on behind a pulpit. People have crept in. And what does he say about these people who crept in? Do what? Okay, well, 
Yeah, this raises all kinds of questions about him, but okay. But I gave all diligence to write unto you, for there are certain men who crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Please note, what are they, so not only are they ordained to condemnation, that's a whole different theological implication here, but just the main thing about them is they're ungodly. They attack the grace of God. And they deny the Lord God and the Lord Jesus Christ. They're inside the church. They're inside the church. Now, if, if, the fir- if verse 3 makes me want to just close the book and say, don't even bother, verse 4 completely leads me to despair, discouragement, and want to just quit. Why do you think verse... If you, everyone can understand my frustration with verse 3? Because it just seems like we're playing games. Hey, okay, I learned about earnestly contend for the faith and I'm going to go home and do absolutely nothing. Okay, well that, that just makes me want to just say, what's the point? But verse 4 just literally just makes me want to just quit. Why? Why do you think verse 4 ca- causes such discouragement and dis- depression in me? Why do you think? Because you're going to be contending with people inside the church. You're going to be contending with people inside Christianity. That's, you know how frustrating it is to realize when you become a Christian, you're going to spend most of your time fighting with other people who claim to be Christians? Is that not the most discouraging thing on the face of the planet? All right, we'll stop there. Yeah, that's all the good news in the book of Jude. Right? So I, I hope you understand. I know that you may say, man, he was really hard on us. I'm not, I'm not even trying to be hard on you. I'm just telling you that I just feel like it's a waste of time. I just feel like Jude is a waste of time. Hey, let's, you earnestly contend. And everybody will be like, amen. And then you know, about six months later, so what have you been doing these last six months to earnestly contend? What have you, well, haven't done this, haven't done this, haven't, okay, well then I guess I wasted my time preaching that book. Right? All right, so, well, I, I'll just leave it there. I, I, there's not much else more, there's not more I can say. You just see the total frustration with, that, with this Verse, a lot of times we preach these verses and everybody says amen. In reality, we're not going to change one thing. We're not going to do anything different. So we were all just playing church. And at times you just kind of realize that, yeah, it doesn't really mean anything. So, all right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Very challenging section of scripture. I don't know what anyone who, who's listening to this will do with it. But I pray that we'll make us all stop and ask ourselves, Do we actually really care about what the purpose is of a book? Because I think the reality is we're just going to do whatever we want to do, no matter what your word says. And that's a sad reality. We ask this in Jesus' name. God's people said.